Facebook's really probably the best way, or you can just email me at jfmguitarist. It's my initials, James fucking Murphy. <laughs> Welcome back. Thanks for joining me again on Misery Point Radio. As always, I appreciate you ignoring that little angel on your shoulder that says, run away now, and instead listening to that little devil, the one that says, stick around, fool. And let me tell you, I promise you'll be glad you did. I know I made you wait an extra week for this one, so I'm going to make it worth your while. Because today's guest is one of the most recognizable talents in the metal industry. Someone whose stories and experiences can not only provide insight into the history and development of metal as we know it, but also serve as a cornerstone of knowledge and advice. And of course, I'm talking about none other than the one and only Mr. James Murphy. I caught up with James on what turned out to be the 30th anniversary of the release of Spiritual Healing from genre-pioneering Florida band Death, which is considered by many to be a pivotal album in the world of death metal, often being cited as a turning point that marked the transition to which death metal musicians really began to be truly respected and taken seriously as artists. Arguably, of course, but I support that theory. And as much as I said I was not going to go down the often-traveled road of death stories and very personal health issues, James spoke freely and openly about both, providing an in-depth look at his life and his experiences. Of course, we also talked about his role as a producer, session artist, a guest soloist, and we got a surprise announcement, well, surprise to me anyway, about an upcoming project that I'm sure will blow your minds. So, give yourself a little extra time for this one. I know it's long, but really, you don't want to miss out on any of this, I promise you. So, check out this very special double episode and take notes. Many of the answers to your burning questions are, in fact, right here. All right, minions, welcome back to Misery Point Radio. Today, we have a very special guest. Some of you might have heard of him. If you haven't heard of him, well, then I'm sorry for your loss. I'm stoked to welcome to the show Mr. James Murphy. James, thank you for taking the time, brother. Definitely appreciate it. No problem, man. Happy to be with you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I guess it sounds kind of strange to say, you know, what's new, considering you and I don't know each other, but, uh, you know, how's things going? You keeping busy in the studio? I am. I am. I'm pretty busy right now. I have uh, a number of things you know, on the, on the table at the moment, um, and include, you know, everything from, uh, some mixing, some mastering, um, and, uh, some guest solo recording that I need to do. Oh, well, cool. Yeah. Well, I love that. And we'll talk I about gotta, guest solos as well. That's kind of a cool thing. Uh, so you're staying busy enough to pay the rent. It sounds like anyways. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that, that's the idea I have. I have cut back on the amount of work that I have taken on in the last uh, uh, almost about two years because um, I started having uh, a particular health issue. I actually took care of it a year ago, finally. I started having some digestive issues, problems with my uh, 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 gallbladder. And almost exactly a year ago, it was a year ago, just a couple of days back, I... uh, uh, was uh, in surgery. Oh, good time to have it removed. So, yeah, but that thing caused me problems for two years prior, and uh, all during struggling with all these problems, I was also 
you know, developing my, my first serious relationship in a long time. And, and, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, she's here. So those with me now and, uh, we're engaged and yeah. Uh, congratulations by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. thanks. Well, your, uh, your medical problems just, uh, boy, you're just getting hit with that shit hammer, aren't you? Uh, uh you know, I, I have been, I wouldn't say that I'm being hit with it real hard right now. Uh, you know, uh, someone who has to go through a pituitary tumor, if you know anybody else like that, they'll tell you that they will have problems for the rest of their life that they have to address. Usually you just get some medication and you take it and you go every once in a while, you get checked up to make sure all the medication is working properly. They'll check certain hormone levels and they'll, they'll do basic, you know, full blood panels to make sure everything's working good. And so for me, um, you know, with the, uh, pituitary being the, master gland of the entire endocrine system right it can throw a lot of things out of whack and once you have a tumor on it it's it's shot your pituitary is messed up yeah so you have to do a lot you have to maintain a lot of things and um keep an eye on a lot of things and you know doing that doing that pretty successfully that's awesome so i'm not i'm not crying i'm not crying about the state of my health uh you know it could always be better you know but uh well, you look great. You're still with us. You're staying busy. Yeah, you're taking care of it. So, I mean, that's that's Absolutely. awesome. I mean, what are you going to do? You get dealt a hand. You got to play that hand. And, I mean, here it is many moons yeah, later. Yeah. You know, you're still you're still doing your thing. So, uh, that's awesome. And, you know, I was, was kind of thinking about this, you know, um, as I was kind of doing a little bit of homework and thinking about all of the time that you spent back in the day as a, you know, touring musician, performing musician, recording artists, that kind of stuff. And then I think about where you're at now with safe house and in your career as a producer. And you've really actually seems like you've spent as much, if not more time doing what you're doing now than kind of what you initially got known for back in the day. Yeah. I would say my touring and my primary recording career. And I, and I, yeah, I differentiate my primary recording recording career. Cause you still do it because I do still record on albums all the time. Mm-hmm. But in, in these days it's more guest appearance uh, it's three categories, guest appearance, you know, hired studio musician as a, you know, not necessarily as a, like a featured guest, like a featured guest you do in one or two solos. Sure. If you're hired as a studio musician for an album, you may play on the entire album, yeah. but you know, you're just getting paid, you know, to, to, to do it. And then, uh, but you're credited and everything like that. And then there's uh, ghost appearances. Ghost appearances are what a lot of producers who are musicians end up doing, you know, when there's for whatever reason, a musician, a band that can't play a particular part, can't pull it off for whatever reason. Maybe they hurt their hand that week and they got it in a splint or they, you know, or the, the bass player, maybe the guitar players are want them to play something that's more advanced than he can pull off currently, <laughs> whatever the case may be, things happen in the studio all the time. Sure. Uh, where, you know, someone's sick or something like that. And, uh, you know, the schedule can't change. So you end up recording things and, uh, and, and they're not credited. You don't really talk about it. They're, they're, they're not, uh, so substantial in material that to the sound or to the quality that it really even matters, you know, almost who did it, you know, right. We're not talking about solos. We're not talking about featured parts, just sort of, okay, this, this part here with, um, you know, 16 note triplets at 180 and the rhythm, you know, the guitar player can't do it right now because he, you know, fell off his riding lawnmower or something, you know, <laughs> because life happened. <laughs> hit, his arm right? on a, yeah. hit, 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 hit his arm on a garden gnome, you know, when he fell off the lawnmower, 
I don't know, you know, stuff happens, you know, I've had all kinds of reasons why I've had to play a particular part, you know, on a song or, or a particular instrument, you know, on an album. Yeah. There's something to be done. You just got to make sure it's done. I've been doing, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, guest appearances, studio musician work where, you know, you're, you're basically a craftsman. You're, you're hired just to, you know, you know, guest appearances, people are hiring you for your art, you know, uh, studio musician stuff. It's more like you're, you're hired for your craft. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, I differentiate between the two, you know, although they are related, I definitely differentiate. We can talk more about that later, but if you want to, um, but, uh, you know, then there's this, the sort of ghost stuff where you just are doing what you got to do in the studio to get, to get stuff done because of whatever reason that, that, that may occur. Sure. Does that happen? Does that happen a lot? Often enough that I have a category for it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess that's true. Huh? I mean, I, I probably got a stack of CDs in there that high that that I'm playing on that nobody knows about. Yeah, you know, because it's just a little part here or there where, for whatever reason, musician was available, wasn't able, or was injured or, or some, you sure. know something like that, or sick or or what have you. Um. And that's just something you just jump in and do it. You don't. You don't necessarily have to be asked. You're just like, "Fuck, let's just get this done, man. Let's uh, let's make this work for you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, usually either the artist will suggest it, or or I'll suggest it. Say, hey, just to get this done, why don't I play this section? I got it here. You can show them I can play it. You know, it's great. And they're. I really will only do it when the artist goes, yeah, great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, and uh, you know, so, some things, you know, move the ball forward, you know, you just got, you got to move the ball forward. Well, you know, that's uh, uh, that's the producer role coming out really saying, Hey, this is, yeah. this is a project that, you know, we've, we've got to, we've got to make this happen. And so yeah, you, it's got a start point. It's got an end point. And, you know, I have been, I would say that I've been guilty in the past and it has hurt my career. I've been guilty in the past of being a little too indulgent with artists who like to really stretch things out, take a long, long time. They want to play it all, even if they can't, or, you know, they want to, you know, sometimes I, I've been indulgent. And when you're indulgent as a producer, if you're too indulgent, um, stuff doesn't get done on time. And when stuff doesn't get done on time, there's only one person who's going to be under that bus. Yeah. Yeah, if it rolls into other projects you got scheduled too, that's where it can get kind of hairy. Yeah, no, it absolutely. I've been in, you know, in the past, I've been guilty of that. I've I've gotten better with that stuff. I, I sort of, you learn as a producer to keep things on schedule. Sure. Do you find that some bands have a hard time with that? You know, when when you see that maybe somebody's either struggling or maybe they're having an off day. And you say, "Hey, listen. Here's my solution." Maybe they don't like it. Do you run into that quite a bit? I can really only recall running into it one time, and it was when I had to suggest to a band, "Like, hey, your drummer isn't ready. I'm not telling you you should fire the drummer. Sure, but I'm telling you you should either a talk with your label and discuss if you're really dead set on this guy as your drummer. He needs more time, so to learn the songs he had." Plenty of time. We did pre-production, you know, six to eight weeks ago. He had the pre-production results, which included, among many other things that were accomplished in pre-production, one of the work products of the pre-production session was 
really tight scratch guitar tracks recorded left and right stereo, you know, with a click track to a click track and also to a rough MIDI sketch of the drums. Okay. You know, so you just sort of work out the song, you work out the arrangement, you work out all the, all the rhythm parts. Like you may find out, you just find all the little bugs, you know, like, Oh, this guitar player was doing, you know, it, it, 32nd notes you, you it's hard to tell that the one guy's going two three two three two three and the other guy's going three two three two three two and all big mess you know like on the frets you know these fret numbers and you uh uh so like f sharp g or g f sharp back and forth sure uh standard standard pitch tuning um and uh you know you find all those things you locate all those things. That, that one should be obvious i, I could kind of what a fairly obvious example but stuff happens you know you get stuff sometimes where the guitar players are doing uh 16th note little and the bass player is like doing a triplet or something like that. You find all those little things and you get them all sorted out. You find a harmony that's bad, you know, you correct it, you know, and, and you get it all recorded real tight. Scratch guitar, mind you, not not final work, sure. you know, final album production, but just scratch guitar. You usually just use a modeler, don't even plug into an amp for it, you know. And uh, uh, a click track and perhaps a nice MIDI skeleton, which the usually have the drummer on hand and we just tap it out, you know, cause we're just working real quick, you know, uh, pre-production, just getting through the songs, making sure everything is cool in the songs. And, uh, uh, you know, you do that and you give that and as part of, like I said, part of the work product is click tracks and a drummer has those for like six to eight weeks out to practice, to not only be practicing the songs with the band, with all the things that were discovered, messed up that they now know to practice and work on um the drummer himself can also just practice on his own yeah just throw that in his cans or over the pa in the rehearsal room and you know at home with headphones and an electronic kit or, or whatever they have at home driving down the road listening in the car and air drumming whatever <laughs> you know that's what i that's what drummers usually do and they usually come in really really super super prepared yeah. when, when they work with me because i give them all the tools to be super ready to record this song. Yeah, no surprises. And yeah, and uh, you know, after six to eight weeks of having that, if you show up in the studio and you still cannot play the songs worth crap, that's when you need to have a discussion. And one of, one of a couple of things needs to happen. One, either you need to go back to your label and your management and you need to discuss about taking another several weeks prior to recording if it hasn't already been baked in, if, if the manufacturing uh, uh, time hasn't already been booked by the label, you know, like, oh, no, we've booked it. We'll lose money if we lose this slot. You know, we can't, you know, we've already, we're already planning, you know, a lot of times at that stage, they're about to record the labels. If there's a label, it's already planning, it's marketing, it's already spending money, it's putting money down to reserve manufacturing time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So all kinds of things happen. So you, uh, uh, that's usually not a realistic option, but it, it's it's one, especially one for unsigned bands that are bands whose labels are, you know, have are not so on the ball, you know, necessarily. That's and that's a bad thing, I suppose. But sure. But uh, uh, you uh, you can do that. You can take more time, give the guy another chance, come back in. It messes everything up. I got to reschedule my whole life. It's a really terrible option. It's terrible for a lot of reasons. My schedule's screwed. The label schedule's probably screwed. Right. All the management's plans are going to go to hell. So uh, I would not say that it is a uh, actually really almost ever a viable option, but you, you got to tell them, hey, 
you got that choice, which is a very bad and probably will get naysayed by everybody, everybody else involved. Everybody involved, yeah. Or we can bring in a ringer. We can bring in a studio musician who will play the drums. Then your drummer will need to learn how to play them for live. Yeah. Or C, you got to replace your drummer. Oh. We can get a studio drummer right now, and you can get and get find a drummer that'll be able to play that. Or you find a drummer right now who will be able to play this stuff right now. There's very few guys like that. They're they're mostly all working as studio musicians. Sure. You know, studio drummers a lot because they they have that ability and. You know, I've had to do that. I've had to sit a band down and have that hard conversation with them. Like your drummer is just going to be completely incapable of pulling this material off. He's absolutely failing. And uh, we spent all day. And he hasn't gotten one take of any of the songs that's even remotely usable. We can't even edit it and fix it. It's so jumbled, so messed up. He's so far off base. So you, you, you have to make a move. And ultimately, they decided to... Uh, to uh, bring in a studio guy and then they really hit it off with the studio guy and ended up, you know, hired him for, for a while. Cosmic twist of fate. Yeah. Yeah. So that happens. It does happen. And you know, and where I'm at in your original question, if I, if I roll back to what you asked me originally was, you know, where am I in my playing career scheme of things? And I'm in that sort of studio musician, guest musician, ghost musician sort of thing that, uh, a lot of producers who are players, you know, also find themselves, you know, doing quite a bit of my primary recording and touring career took place from 1987 to uh, 2000, I guess, when The Gathering was released or whatever. Yeah, that was 99 or 2000. And I, I think I toured into 2000 with them. So from 87 to 2000, it was like 13 years. Meanwhile, I've been doing the production thing. So, you know, and it, so up to about 2000, I've been I've been doing the production thing exclusively for about 19 years, almost 20 years. And, uh, I did it for a few years before while I was in bands, you know, my last, pretty much my entire time in Testament, I was, you know, working as an engineer first as an intern and whatever, learning the craft and then started working as an engineer and all that. So probably have been at about really realistically about 25 years, uh, as, as an engineer, producer, you know, you know, mixer in about 20, some odd, 23, 24 years is doing mastering as well, but yeah, 13 years recording and touring and, and more there, so. there was some overlap, <laughs> right? but even, but, but more so I'm already, I'm, I'm close to double the time on uh, uh, being a, a producer. That's crazy. Do you miss playing shows at all? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, was, well, it hasn't been 20 years since I played a show, but it has been probably about 14 or 15. Whenever the Roadrunner United, uh, I think 30th anniversary, show was at the at the uh uh at that big theater off Times Square in New York. It was the big they put up the album and everything. Um it was thirtieth or twenty fifth anniversary I forget of Roadrunner Records and they made a big deal about it. And they and had a big had an album that had alumni from the label playing on songs together in cool little groups and stuff like that. It was it was really, really cool. And uh we did a concert for that and uh, I played that. I played, I think three songs that night. What songs did you play? If you remember, um, uh, curse of the Pharaohs, Alice in hell, <laughs> curse of the Pharaohs from merciful fate, yeah. Alice in hell by, uh, Annihilator. Uh, Annihilator. And, uh, uh, 
Abigail King Diamond. King Diamond, yeah. Awesome. I think like on uh, on on uh, Alice in Hell, I actually played that with uh, with Jeff from Annihilator was oh man on guitar. But when I did uh, Curse of the Pharaohs, it was uh, uh, it was me and uh, Andres Kisser. Oh, Sepultura, yeah. And yeah, and when I did Abigail, I think it was me and Dino Cazares. Man, that's just a yeah, that's just an all star jam band going on there. Yeah, there's a DVD of it, man. Oh, that's killer. Why? Check it out. It's called Roadrunner United. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So, obviously, I mean, your your work with with as a producer as an as an engineer, I mean, this is this is you. This is this is James Murphy's career path from here till till whenever, but obviously you you kind of made your name, you know, back in those those heydays, uh, you know, when I think back to the, you know, the 80s and 90s for me, I think that was very formative for a lot of musicians because that's really when the scenes were exploding, you know, Bay area thrash and, you know, the Tampa scene and then the New York hardcore scene. And then, you know, even where I'm from in Seattle, we had, you know, the tail off part of that started going from like metal into more of the quote unquote alternative kind of stuff. And, you know, bands like Nevermore and Sanctuary and, and uh, Faustus and all those guys. Um, but I, I think that era for right. me was really critical in, in kind of uh, defining the music scene that I, I think kind of still exists in all those areas. And, you know, definitely you were, you were kind of a part of it. What do you think when you think about that, that time frame? does that ever cross your mind that, man, man, that was just kind of a, a crazy time and a lot's happened since then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thoughts like that kind of cross my mind every single day, especially, you know, with social media, <laughs> um, love it or hate it. You know, people, people post a lot of, uh, memory. Like you can't, I can't log into my feed without seeing, you know, you know, this album's, you know, was released on this day in 19, whatever it was, right. and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's the 20th anniversary. Uh, I, I believe it is tomorrow. And the, and the, uh, the notices and, and photos and everything, I've already started appearing on Facebook today. Tomorrow. I, I believe it is tomorrow. Perhaps it's today, but I think it's tomorrow is the 30th anniversary of death, spiritual healing. Yeah. And, uh, it's getting a lot, a lot of, uh, attention already on social media. My feed is filled with various uh, sort of JPEGs and, <laughs> and stuff, you know, commemorating the 30th anniversary of, uh, of, uh, spiritual healing. And, you know, get, you get a lot of messages from people. So it's almost like you kind of relive those times, <laughs> you know, every week, you know, yeah. another, especially when you played on as many albums as I did. Sure. And, you know, so it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. And I remember, uh, you know, a couple of years ago in, in, uh, 2017, it was the 30th anniversary of, of my first like professional live show really ever, which was at the Hammersmith Odeon in London where I played with the band Agent, with Agent Steel. Steel. Yeah. 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 And, uh, so, so yeah, my, my touring career actually started in the eighties and 87, but, uh, my recording career, also kind of did because uh, my first album that I ever played on uh, was Spiritual, was spiritual Healing. Healing. Yeah. Yeah. We, we recorded it in 1989. It was uh, summer to, uh, I would say in, in fall, starting in the fall or so of 89, we started recording that. And uh, it came out in February of, of 90. So, yeah. It's funny, you know, uh, a lot of those bands, a lot of those albums from back in the day, they still have like lasting power. I mean, 
you look at how many years it's been since, say, a spiritual healing came out or, you know, a cause of death or, or you know, uh, disincarnated dreams of carrying kind. These things have been around for a while and people still are finding them. They're still, it's new for a lot of people. Um, they've just never really gone away. It kind of blows my mind. It's awesome. Yeah. Every, every time, uh, you know, every time I turn around, you know, a new, you know, I get, I get contacted by, by fans every day on social media. And sometimes they're, they're guys that are in their fifties that were around back, you know, that were young back when, you know, 30 years ago when these albums started coming out. And, uh, but so often they're really young guys in their teens or early twenties, you know? Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, that's, that's, Pretty cool. A testament to the staying power of some of the the OG projects out there. You know, I was talking to yeah, uh, exactly. I was talking to to Rick Roz actually a few months back. I was at that Orlando show for the Massacre reboot, and we sat down out oh, okay. out, out at the back of uh, Will's Pub where the show was at. And coincidentally, not even knowing it, you look at the back of this place, and there's a shrine to two musicians there. On there, one musician was Peter Steele from Typo Negative. And then the other was was Chuck, right? And so right. <laughs> Rick looks at that and he goes, "Man, everywhere I go, <laughs> he's like, I just I can't es- <laughs> I can't escape it. It's everywhere. So uh, good, yeah. good or bad. I mean, that's just I guess part of the legacy. And mm-hmm. and you guys both being part of that that legacy is pretty crazy. In fact, didn't you guys go hang out uh, during that time frame? I want to say I was talking to Scott from False Prophet, and he said you guys all went out and had lunch or something like that. Yeah, 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 we did. Uh, Rick wasn't there, but uh, Scott and a couple of the other guys from the, you know, that were around it, you know. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, I, I went and had lunch with them. But I've gone and, you know, not that long ago, a few years back, I played uh, uh, a guest solo on something that had both Rick and Terry on it. Uh, Rick and Terry Butler, I think it might have been a massacre thing. Damn, I can't even remember. <laughs> Terry, dude, I played... I play so many guest spots I, that I sometimes forget, like what I actually right. played on. I think I played. I did. I think Masker did a cover, and I played a guest solo on. And I came home, went, you know, went to Orlando and hung out in the studio with 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 Terry and, and Rick. I think Terry picked me up and then went there and hung out with those guys. And I played a guest solo, and then later on they took me home. You know, that was just a I don't know a few years back, I suppose. Awesome. Well, you know, you kind of became really known, I think, for a a signature sound like there is definitely a James Murphy flavor, if you will, to your solos and your sonic kind of qualities. Um, you know, at least as far as the studio magic goes, kind of really cool harmony parts and some layers and some really kind of tasteful tremolo stuff, not like dive bombing or anything, but you know, you've got a, something that's very identifiable. How would you describe that sound? Well, I would say in terms, in terms of referring to, uh, the harmonies in any way, shape, or form is studio magic. That really is only true in the sense that, in order to have those harmonies, I had to overdub. Sure, yeah. You know, and the, and that is obviously you're playing both tracks you do in the studio. But yeah, I I often get asked like, dude, what harmonizer did you use on, you know, spiritual healing or whatever? And I just like this one yeah <laughs> track one track two <laughs> yeah just hold up my finger so like that one you know i just we armed you know i recorded the first part and then we armed a new track and i recorded the second part yeah. you know i just played it and like uh oh really i thought it was a you know even tied or whatever because it's so tight i'm like oh well you know it's not really that tight it's, <laughs> it's a human it's a human level of tight it's not that robotic tight that you can hear, you know, when you actually listen to someone playing with an even tide, you know. Um, 
But yeah, I just practiced a lot. <laughs> you know, I practiced a lot back then. There's a definite, you know, I mean, harmonies, I, I'm a, I'm a fan of them. And I mean, yes, they can be overdone to the point where you're just fucking sick of them, but, but I actually really like them. But, uh, your, the, the tones, the kind of the, how everything kind of plays out, you know what it reminds me of, not within the same industry, of course, but like Tom Scholes had a very identifiable guitar tone with Boston. And everybody was always like, Oh my yeah. God, how do you, how do you make that sound? And he's like, I just, play and stuff happens and you know it's all your fingers and whatnot but i think part of it is um you know you can listen to a passage and go okay cool that sounds like james murphy um i guess like it or not there is definitely some kind of an identification that you're associated with there yeah i i suppose that you know uh, to the extent that i've been aware of it myself consciously myself without people telling me about it i have to that same extent, tried my damnedest to squash it. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm mean, like, you know, and, and probably those attempts were ill-advised, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm talking about in years past and way in years past when I was, when I was really getting my chops together, when I was learning how to be a musician, when I, when I became aware that like, Oh, all my solos sort of have this certain signature flair. You can, you can always sort of tell it's me. I wanted to squash that. My instinct was to, oh, I need to learn some different techniques. I need to try to do some things a different way. I need, you know, I, I wanted to squash that. But the, the reality is that it, it, it's, it was something completely out of my control. It's just something about the way I've been, the way I've vibrato, and the innate way in which I make certain note choices against certain harmonic backdrops, you know, and I, I can only, I can't help but realize that it has accrued to my benefit over the years, you know. Uh, in terms of, you know, people just knowing who the hell I am. And, you know, when I look back at, you know, some of my favorite guitar players, yeah, I, I can tell it's them within a few couple of notes. You can tell it's them. And people say that about me, too. And I'm like, well, OK, you know, you can tell it's Angus Young in a couple of notes. You can tell, you know, you can tell you, you can tell it was Randy Rhodes in a couple of notes. You can tell it's Eddie Van Halen, just a couple of notes, Absolutely. et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not putting myself in uh the ranks of those players, you know, uh, playing wise, but it, Hey, if, if, if I'm as recognizable to people as they are to people, that can't be a bad thing. And I, I used to, when I was, you know, early on, you know, used to think it was, but, uh, I've, I've definitely learned better over the years. You know, yeah. you, you grow up and you learn like, no, this is not a bad thing that I have it. Having your own signature style that people can recognize is absolutely a great thing, provided you don't become, super boring and repetitive like oh we can right. always tell it's him because he always does the exact same thing every you know every solo you know sure you know and uh if you can avoid that then uh and but and you can maintain uh, you know your own sonic identity doing that and you know it's, it'll probably work out good for you you know and you know it, it did for me so do you think that by the time you had gotten to the the point where you were in death um that you had already kind of started to really hone in on that style that you became known for? You know what? This will probably blow some people's minds. It blows my mind thinking back on it on a little bit. Blow our minds. I had, I had no idea that I was capable of what I played on that album until I did it. Oh, I didn't have any idea because, you know, I had, you know, sure. I had toured with Spandy to steal that. That was a couple of years earlier. Right. Uh, probably two, you know, a little over two years earlier, I toured Vegas Steel, and you know, I had to play a bunch of songs, which for me to be, were basically cover songs. Okay, 
I was trying to play solos, the solos of a guitar player who was much better than me. And I'm talking about Mr. Uh, Bernie Versailles. Okay. From uh, Agent Steel, who um, I, he's had some health problems in recent years. I hope he's doing much better. But Bernie was a phenom. I mean, he was absolutely amazing dude, amazing guitar player. And he's the one whose spot I filled when I joined Agent Steel for that year, you know, Europe and UK tour in 87 and the album that he played on that he played all those great solos on had, you know, was the one that was coming out on the tour and we, that we were supporting. And so I had to learn all those solos and I know I didn't learn them. Well, I can listen back to the old recordings and God, man, I sucked. <laughs> I didn't hold a candle to Bernie, you know, but it really, that everything that I did up to that point And after that always pushed me to get better and better, and better. I mean, after doing that, um, after getting that gig with Agent Steel and doing that tour, I went. I, I spent a couple of years just uh, teaching guitar and occasionally going on the odd audition. Yeah, and you know, I never actually landed any of the auditions. You know, um, I was mostly just uh, teaching, but through teaching and through trying and failing, I just got better and better and better. And I, I had never done a full album of original music before and played and had to come up with solos for each and every song. You know, I, I had never done that. You know, I, I'd recorded a little bit on a four track at home and I made up this little part. And I came up with a little solo part over it, but it was always just n nothing that big of scale as spiritual healing. So, you know, the circumstances sort of lifted me up. Now, I had done a lot of the work, the preparation without knowing it to be able to take advantage of the of the push that the urgency to, to get this done and do it well gave me, you know, and you find yourself in a position where there's an urgency to get things done and, you know, on a schedule and do them well, and you're not prepared, you're probably going to crash and burn. You know, luckily I had done the preparation. So I was able to continue that and, and rise to the occasion of that album and what it was to me and my mind and my heart, what I had to do, what I had to accomplish. So it was more of a necessity thing. It was a necessity. I had to come up with better work than I had ever shown myself even that I was capable of. And uh, fortunately I, I, I did it and I didn't, it wasn't hard. That's the thing. It's just, even just from the first day, like I had never written music with, I wrote one song with the Age of Steel guys. They wanted to try to do a new song live. They asked me if I had any riffs. And, you know, this is in 1987 in this little rehearsal place in Tampa where we were practicing for that tour. Um, I just pulled a riff out of my ass. You know, and just, <laughs> we turned it into a song when, you know, in just a little while. And we actually performed it on that tour. Um, but that was the only time I had ever written anything with anybody. And I, I, I think the other guy might've contributed one riff to it or something like that, but I, I wrote the majority of it. And, uh, but going into things with death and, uh, you know, in the summer of 1989, when I, after I had gotten the gig and I, I showed up for the first rehearsal slash writing sessions for spiritual healing, you know, it was almost like the same thing. I was there I was with the guys we practiced. They taught me the four songs that were already written for spiritual and then he said, yeah, we want to write like, you know, four or five more tunes. Do you have any ideas? I said, uh, and it just immediately just started flowing from there. I just started, again, just pulling riffs out of my butt. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
what about this one? And I just would make it up on the spot usually. And they liked it, you know? So it just flowed easily. And I don't know how it happened. I don't know how, I don't know. I guess learning all this stuff that I had learned to that point, learning so many other songs, learning other band songs, Agent Steel's repertoire, which was at that point was two albums in an EP, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And having to do all this stuff, it just set me up for being able to, and I guess just my own innate, you know, creativity allowed me to be able to, to do it. And so when it came time in the studio to come up with solos, you know, I, I, I pretty much wrote the solos there in the studio. Okay. Uh, I would, I would play through the part a number of times and start coming up with ideas and until it gelled into something solid and then, and then we'd record it. And uh, I forget about how much time I took for each solo to, to get my ideas together. But Scott wouldn't even record me until I had probably played through the solo 20, 30 times. Scott uh, Burns? Gathering ideas. Yeah. You know, Scott Burns, yeah. Gathering ideas. And once I had my ideas together, like he wouldn't even stay in the room after a while. He would go out and have himself a little break. And I, I, and I just operated the two-inch machine with the the big controller of the two inch <laughs> machine, he actually would set it on shuttle for me. So it would just repeat, Constantly you know, repeat. just play the part, re rewind, play it again. And, uh, now I'll try these ideas and put them together and it, and it just worked, you know, it just worked like that. And after each solo, after I said, okay, Scott, I'm ready to record it. I got my ideas together. We'd do a couple of takes until I nailed it and it would be done. And I'd listen back and think, how the hell did I pull that off? You know, <laughs> do you map them out like note for note or is this something that you kind of get a general phrasing idea? No, and you no, just kinda no, wing it was it? kind of general phrasing idea. Yeah. General phrasing idea. Like I know sometimes I know, yeah, I definitely want to do this melody here. Right. And I'm probably going to want to harmonize it, but I wouldn't work that stuff out in advance or exactly how it would fall. You know, I didn't really know, but I would put ideas in order. I like, hey, I like that idea to open it because, you know, a, a good solo to my mind, and I knew this even back then, possibly because I had read it somewhere, you know, one of my idols saying it, you know, saying this, um, that a good solo is almost like a little story. You know, it has an intro, it builds, it it has a a, a lull, like a like a, a valley, and then it climbs a mountain, and then it has a crescendo. And then it sails out, you know what I mean? And into the sunset. Three acts you know? of catharsis. And yeah. If you can, if you can pull that off, you probably got a good solo. So I, I tried to put together solos in a way that they, I, whatever ideas I had when I was just jamming over it, that I, I would try to take those ideas and order them in a way that they kind of did that. And then as I recorded it, Hey, you know, I didn't, I didn't have it worked out exactly no per note. So, whatever little happy accidents happen along the way, like things just flowed together a certain way, or I did something I never did before, but it worked. We just kept all that, you know, of course. Yeah. Awesome. And, uh, you know, so I you know, looking back at it, I'm just like, man, at that point, you got to realize I was, it was 1989 and I had started playing guitar seriously in 1985. Probably in 1983, 84, I knew a couple of open chords sure. on an old acoustic my dad had. But I didn't start learning how to play guitar properly until 1985. Oh. And by 1989, I was in the studio recording that, Spiritual Healing, which I still listen back to. And, and I think, 
how the hell did I do that? I'd only been playing guitar about four years. <laughs> that's pretty remarkable when I you think that, about you know? it. Yeah, that's a very <laughs> compressed time frame to go from, you know, point A to point B. And then not only that, but that really kind of became something that you just are now known for, like forever in the history of ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it definitely weird. Yeah. Developing kind of, I guess, that signature and that style. And then you you moved on from there and went on to, of course, play in Obituary and, you know, Disincarnate and whatnot. Obituary was not necessarily so much of a collaboration. You just kind of went in there and, and learned it, some it stuff. Was, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, with Chuck, I wrote music together with him. Right. Um, four of the songs on Spiritual Healing I co-wrote. Yeah. Um, which is half, you know, half of the songs on the, on the, on the album. Um, with uh, Cause of Death, those guys already had everything written right. and pretty well recorded as far instrumentally. I don't, John wasn't done with vocals at, at all, I don't think, but instrumentally it was largely done. I know the bass wasn't quite finished yet. Um, Frankie hadn't, hadn't laid his bass in, or at least not all of it. And uh, But I came in, but this is the thing. Chuck hated Whammy Bar. I'll, I'll let you figure out. I'll let you put two and two together I've, why he hated Whammy Bar. I've heard. I've heard he, the stories. He hated Whammy Bar. So I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever taken notice, there's really no Whammy Bar on spiritual healing at all. Certainly not Chuck. His guitars didn't even have. No, he bars. didn't even have a trouble on his. Yeah. Yeah. Mine did. But because I knew Chuck was very anti Whammy, I just took my bars out and I put them away. I was just, I'm just, that way, I'm just not even. It's not, not even, even a thing. Tempted. Yeah, yeah, not even tempted to reach for it. And uh, <laughs> so it was a cool like limitation that was put on my expression that actually fed me to come up with more ways to become creative. So I think it actually really helped. Now it's not true to say there's absolutely no quote unquote bar on spiritual healing, right? And actually, on the titled song. There's what Chuck referred to as a grinder. It's when you just hit the low, you know, the low E string and it's go. Oh, yep. He called them grinders. Okay. So there's a big old grinder. I think it's kind of it's either right before the solos start or between mine and his solos. It's sort of like a uh, just a it's just there. It's just a big old grinder. And the thing is, Chuck's guitars didn't have bars at all, so he couldn't do it. And so he asked me to record it. Oh, dude, you should just do a big old grinder here. I was like, oh, you sure? Because in my mind, I'm like, I thought you hated Whammy Bar. But it worked. It was a good idea, and it really, really worked. And But because I had put my bars away, I didn't even know where they were. I had lost track of them. I was like, shit, I don't even, I don't even have them here at the studio. Hey, Scotty, uh, Scotty went into the, the uh, tech room there where they worked on things there. And, and grabbed a screwdriver <laughs> and I took a Phillips head screwdriver and I stuck it down in the hole where the whammy bar would normally screw in right. or pop in as the case may be. And I just stuck the screwdriver down in the hole and it was a little Phillips head screwdriver. And went, and then, <laughs> so the only whammy bar on spiritual healing isn't even actually whammy bar. It's a Phillips it's head a screwdriver. screwdriver. <laughs> there you go. There's your yeah, exclusive yeah. drop for you guys yeah, yeah. on uh, the so, secret so, sauce. <laughs> yeah. So to to bridge that over to what we were talking about with uh, the difference between doing it with death and you know coming in on the obituary album where everything was written, yeah, I didn't I didn't have the freedom to contribute in that way, but obituary did not have the uh, the uh, objection to Whammy Bar that Chuck had. They were 
they were not only very open to it, they were very much predisposed to like it. Yeah. You know, they just, they really thought it was cool. So I was unfettered. I found my bars, I put them back on my guitars and, uh, I, I used bar. Yeah. In fact, I gotta say probably on that album, um, it wasn't even one of my guitars. Um, unfortunately when I, I had gotten a couple of guitars while I was in death through a BC rich endorsement mm-hmm. and, uh, Unfortunately, Chuck decided to keep those guitars when I left the band. Oh. So I ent- I entered uh, obituary not even owning a guitar. And I contacted BC Rich, and they were a little bit aghast. And they were kind of like, "What? He kept them? <laughs> those? We gave those to you, man. You know, like, but it wasn't worth pursuing. They, you know, sure. they said, you know, it isn't really worth it isn't worth the the drama that it could cause. And I said, yeah, you're right. You know, we'll just send you some new guitars. So they, they got the process going to send me some new guitars, but because I had to record and I didn't have a guitar, Mike Davis from Nocturnus, oh, he was the guitar yeah. player in Nocturnus at the time, he came by and brought me, I think it was like a Charvel, this blue Charvel that he had. I think everyone imagines that I played that album with a black BC Rich Warlock, Warlock right? Because yeah. that's, what they, <laughs> that's what they saw me playing on tour most of the time in, in support of that album. That, that's the main guitar that I played. And so... When I tell people, no, it was a blue Charvel super, uh, Strat. You know? <laughs> and they're like, what? What? <laughs> and never, never even saw you with that guitar. Like, well, most people didn't. I just used it in the studio. But he had the bar, and I, and I was able to use it, you know, use the bar as I saw fit and uh, get expressive with it. Because I, I was never really kind of the guy to do the, the full-on Kerry King with the whammy bar, you know. Um, I used it more expressively, I think. And uh, and. Sure, I would do harmonics and work the bar, but I tried to do it to make a creepy vibe, not to, you know, slayer out. Yeah, you know. not a means in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was curious, um, you know, about that. And so, did you ever really consider yourself, you know, when you think back, these bands you've played in, an album here, a couple albums there? Do you ever really feel like a part of the band as much as you did with Death with other bands, uh, uh, maybe with uh, Testament or? Well, well, I mean, there's only three bands that I was actually a member of. Well, four bands, four bands that I've been a member of. I was a member of Death. I was a member of Obituary. I was obviously a member of Disincarnate. <laughs> right, of course. And I was a member of Testament. Okay. And, uh, you know, Testament actually lasted the longest. I mean, I was in Testament altogether. You know, I was in Testament over a course of like six years something like that. Three, 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 uh, albums. Um, one of them being live, but you know, low, low and light at Fillmore and, uh, the gathering. Um, so yeah, I very much felt a part of things with Testament. I, you know, I wrote some music with Testament. I, I was, I was, you know, fully a member of the band at the time, you know, um, uh, obituary, I would have to say, uh, of all, and obviously I felt like a member of my own band. Of course, you know, yes. Yeah. Mine, mine. <laughs> and uh, I, I would say obituary, I felt the least like really secure in. And the reason being was that uh, uh, the day that I joined, they told me, I said, well, the reason why we're looking for a guitar player is because our original guitar player from the first album, Alan. Um, Alan West. He just, uh, he, you know, yeah, he's having a... Uh, I guess he's got a girl. I think he's having, I think he was having a, they were having a baby and he was, he was scared of what was going to happen career wise. He didn't know whether obituary was going to be a viable economically for him, you know, and he, he wanted to do the responsible thing and, you know, get a, a job with, you know, 
with money, reliable pay and benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, so he went on, he went to go do that. And those guys were really bummed about it. You know, he was their bro. He was 100%, you know, their guy. And, uh, you know, they had come up together and, and uh, I was this outside dude who was really nothing like them. I mean, I was from Florida like them. I was from Florida, but I had lived, I had lived a, a, a very much outside Florida life because I was in a military brat. So i I lived six years in Germany. You know, I lived in New York. I lived in California. I lived all over the place. So I, I wasn't, you know, they're very proud. They, they, they love to, they call themselves the redneck death metal, I think. And, <laughs> yeah, that's, know, that's their cool brand. And that's yeah. their thing. I never was that guy. I didn't even, you know, I didn't even partake of the herb anymore. I had quit in high school, you know, and I was very much not, you know, I, I was never, uh, I was never that guy that, that fit in great with them on a personal level. I didn't, we could be friendly. Absolutely. But I, I didn't have the same interests by and large, except, you know, me and John and Donald, and I think everyone else in the band, we were all big Steve Ray Bond fans and that, you know, that was a cool thing, but that was, that was it. I, w- I wasn't, we weren't the kind to, to hang out and bro down. So I'm sure to them, I sort of seemed like a real uptight, you know, I was uptight, you know, just at the time, I never really was secure in the band. I wasn't really part of things. They told me in the very, very first day, I guess, get back around to what I originally tried, was trying to say. They told me that very first day, you know, Alan is our boy. And if he ever wants to come back, we will probably take him back. Sure. And uh, as, soon, as soon as the band was actually doing, going pretty successful and was actually earning money, um, I already started to think, you know what? Alan's going to see this. And he's going to want to get back. He's going to want a piece you know, of it. He probably yeah. thought this would all dis- Yeah, he was afraid that it would all disappear and come to nothing, and then, you know, and he didn't want to, he didn't want to eat it, you know, because he had a, he was building a family. Sure. And I, I think that possibly once he realized that, oh well, wow, this is actually viable. They're going out and they're earning money. He wanted to come back, and I don't blame him. Yeah, I don't blame him even a little bit. <laughs> I would have been the same. I would have been like. Let me come back, you know. <laughs> I, I helped build this, you know, let me come back. Anybody making money yeah. in that business is is remarkable. I mean, it's just, as you know, so very challenging. There's so yeah. much stuff behind the scenes that, that happens. But, uh, you know, and you yeah. mentioned that, you know, so when you were when you were out and then you were down the road, you, you playing with Testament, that you'd uh, put a pretty good chunk of time in there. Um, you know, I noticed that like Low and The Gathering had really kind of a different quality. Um, I'm a huge Testament fan. Um, but you know, that those songs on those albums were a little slower and a little heavier and there was a lot more kind of a, a different vibe to it. They still had their, you know, fast shreds and stuff like that, but I really, that was the first thing I noticed. And did you have anything to do with kind of that? Uh, did you notice that that there was a little bit of change in no, direction not, on that? You know, I don't think so. I mean, um, I think that they were going in that direction really anyway, you know, I mean, I, I think possibly the move towards heavier, heavier that they did even after low might've been partially influenced by stuff that I brought to the table in terms of what I listened to and what I liked and what I came from and stuff. You know, I know Eric checked, Eric started checking out a lot of stuff that I was, you know, that I came from and stuff. So maybe, maybe it influenced him to start checking out more death metal and then ultimately to start checking out even black metal, which he did as well. Well, I was going to ask you if there was ever a conversation about you getting involved in dragon Lord and not to go down a rabbit hole, but, uh, no, 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 not at all. That was always just sort of Eric's thing away from Testament. Right. So he didn't really, he didn't really want any of the Testament guys. Of course, he ended up with guys 
he had guys that ended up playing in Testament, like the Giorgio right. and his cousin Derek and, um, you know, and all those guys, both of those guys, great friends, you know. I love those guys. There was definitely that that you could tell that there was a point where they were really exploring, you know, heavier options. Chuckhead started really kind of getting more into some of the death metal vocals, started coming out a little bit more, and yeah, and there was kind of a different sound to the guitars that uh, I was always quite the fan of. Uh, I was just going to say that uh, my primary writing contribution to to Low in particular was not even the heaviest song by by a long shot on the album, you know, and and people probably think that that it. You know, um, uh, my my primary contribution to that was the song "Hail Mary." Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they were they were definitely heading in that direction, and I, I think probably their choice of me was informed a little bit by their desire to move into a bit heavier direction after Alex's departure, right? Because I think he might have been a factor holding that back, uh, uh, perhaps, and that that's kind of what I was led to believe at the time. Um, apologies to Alex if that's not true, but that is, is what I was given to understand at the time. I think that's what's um, been put out to the world. Okay. Yeah. So they, they wanted to do that. They wanted to move in that direction. And, and so their, their choice of me was informed by that. And then, uh, in a sort of knock on effect, their choice of me then led to more exposure to that kind of stuff because of me Sure. and more, you know, and and just kept and fed it even further. So it was a sort of a happened in sort of a symbiotic, sort of organic, natural way, rather than me driving it. I, I wasn't driving it. I was I was a factor. I was part of the engine, you know, but I wasn't the the primary uh, motivating factor. Well, you spent a good chunk of time there so i i would like to think that in some capacity your your presence was more than just the i'm the alex skolnick replacement guy i'm really kind of helping to contribute to the overall sound of this band and uh, those are two you know fantastic albums um i heard a story i don't know if it's true maybe you can confirm it or deny it whichever but uh i heard that during the time you were in testament you had another studio it's different than the one you have now and somebody broke in and burglarized it. Is that true? Yeah, it was towards the end of my time in California, and it was at the, at, at the end of the of my time in Testament because I started becoming sick because of the tumor that I had. Sure, uh, it started really manifesting its side effects very obviously already by 1999, and uh, I had it for a couple more years before it was taken out. Um, but it was already having terrible side effects on me in 99. So bad that I only remember portions of that year. Right. And I don't remember any of the year 2000. Year 2000 is a loss to me. Yeah. Um, I know I did some shows with Testament during that time, but I can't barely remember anything about them. I had to ask Steve. I was just, God, was I even playing worth a crap? <laughs> oh, man. You know, and so I asked the Giorgio and he goes, no, yeah, you were playing fine, Jimmy. <laughs> he calls me Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy, you know, like one of the only people in the world. <laughs> The only person who calls me Jimmy in the world. Uh, no, Jimmy, you're playing fine. Yeah, you're playing great. So I like to stand on your side because you're always really tight. I'm like, okay, cool. At least I wasn't, you know, sucking up a storm. Right. But uh, <laughs> uh, but I don't remember that year, man. I really don't. I've seen photos from that year, and I'm like, with me in them, and I'm like, I don't remember that, you know, at all. You know, no recollection. But uh, it was it was uh. It was a strange thing. And, uh, you know, here's the thing. When a tumor starts pressing on your, your brain, 
and you don't have health insurance, so you're not getting regular checkups, and you have no fam, you have no family in the area you're, you're living. You only have people you're working with and some casual friends. Um, those people can react only in so many ways. You know what I mean? Like they're not your family. Right. They're not actually responsible for you. They can't take you to the hot, to a doctor. You know what I mean? They, you know, they got their own issues to worry about. So the thing is right about that time there, there, there was, there was a big meth craze going on in that area of now I, I quit. I smoked pot in high school. I quit after high school. Um, I haven't done any drugs since then. I don't do any pills. I don't snort anything. I don't do anything. I never have. Certainly no intravenous, nothing. I don't smoke anything. And I haven't since high school when, in fact, the only things I ever smoked were marijuana and hash. And uh, I lived in Germany, so hash was more common than, than actual weed at the time. So I, uh, you know, their only really thought that they could think of was like, wow, Murphy must have started doing meth or something because he's going downhill. Something's happening with him. This guy was always on it, on the ball, you know, always prepared, always on top of things. And he's just losing it. And what was happening was I started losing my memory, started having bad memory issues, started having massive fatigue issues. I didn't know what caused it. Everyone around me assumed I must have started doing some kind of drugs, possibly meth or crank or whatever. I don't know the difference. Sure. I don't know the terminology for all the drugs that were available at the time. Um, and uh, it's, it's sort of an understandable reaction, you know? Yeah. They all, they all kind of stepped back from me, you know? And uh, without getting into ultra long details of what happened, even after once my family managed to get me back to Florida, I'll just very skim across the fact that even they thought for, for a particular reason, they also thought that I, that I had been on drugs and, and they even stepped back a little bit. So, you know, as, as that stuff started happening to me in California, you start losing everything. You start losing track of things you loaned out and people just keep them because you're not asking for it back. Um, people realize you're goofy and, and that you can't uh, uh, remember things and that you're falling asleep left and right. So they just, you know, they're at your pad and like, hey, remember I was here. You just walk out with it. So you just start losing things. And then eventually, I mean, as your memory goes, you forget to show up for work. You forget to, <laughs> you know, and work for me was, was there. I was right there. It's just my studio. That was work for me. But you forget to. You know, you don't answer the door for clients because you're in a half of a coma, you know, in the other room, you know, sleeping, you know, 18 hours a day. And uh, you lose everything. And eventually, you know, your apartment, your, your, your nice loft, loft apartment with all your music gear in it, 30 guitars and this, that, and the other, that have whatever hasn't already grown legs and walked off, gets uh, snagged up by your landlord and eventually auctioned off. So... You know, I lost everything, everything, because no one I was. It happened to me so gradually that I didn't even know anything was wrong with me. I was oblivious. I was oblivious. It was, I couldn't put two and two together. People around me, the only thing they could put together was that I must must be on drugs. So 
they just scattered and I lost everything. And I eventually did get back to Florida. I recovered a few items. I would say I recovered several things. And, and, uh, there was one guy who was very nice enough to pretty much rescue my vinyl collection, which was about 2000 strong. He re- he rescued that whole thing and shipped it back to me, man. That's awesome. Uh, on a truck. Yeah, that was, it was very awesome. Of him. And, uh, Hey, it, uh, it is what it is. I lost, you know, yeah. you lose, you lose everything and you, you rebuild and I rebuilt. Yeah. It's uh, and so it wasn't, a, it wasn't a matter of somebody just one day broke in and stole all your stuff. This was a, a process that had been no, going on for a while. It, it was a process. Yeah. It was a process. Mm-hmm. Certain things grew legs and walked away <laughs> while I still had possession of the, of the loft studio. Right. Other, everything else went once I lost possession of it. Sure. And at that point, when it became known that there was kind of something else going on, you know, did anybody come back at you and say, hey, listen, sorry that I, I, you know, thought, thought the worst about you. Sorry, I jumped to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah, lots of lots of apologies. And, uh, and, and so very surprisingly, a couple of completely unrepentant assholes oh. that I had to that I had to go after. Oh, wow. And, and I, I would say uh, fairly successfully with one of them and with two of them, successfully with two of them and uh, not with another because there was just not enough evidence. But uh, um, you can only do what you can do. Yeah. Well, you did rebuild. And I was curious if, I don't know, the origin of safe house production, was it at all tied to that era that you said, now I'm, I've got this new space. This is just mine. I'm everything's good. Um, how did you kind of come up with that name for that? Uh, part of it was, uh, exactly what you're saying. It's out here. It's in the countryside. It's a residential studio that I've got built out here now. You know, clients come and they sometimes stay for a week or two record, you know, record. And, uh, uh, and it's, it's definitely safe. I've got lots of family nearby and, uh, lots of, you know, various lifelong friends and I'm, you know, and, you know, I have doctors and stuff now and I'm, you know, so I'm, it, everything's a little, so it's definitely part of what you say. The, the other part of it is just, I, I've always been a big fan of sort of spy movies, espionage <laughs> movies, things of that nature. Cool. And they always, you know, they always go back to the safe house after the operation or things go sideways, you know, on the, you know, the, the cover's blown and things go sideways. They run to the safe house, you know, sort of that. So <laughs> awesome. Do you have like secret compartments in your studio or, you know, like a trap door you can just drop down the floor if like somebody comes by and you don't want to talk to them? Uh, hit the fucking trap door button and away you go. <laughs> no, not at all. But it's, it, you know, it's secluded enough that uh, people don't really just stop by without uh, being. I've, I've never had. We've never had anyone just stop by unannounced at this location. But, the, you know, in California, I absolutely yeah. did. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't stop <laughs> by and try to save your soul when you're in the middle of a oh, session. Jehovah's, <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses do. Jehovah's Witnesses do. Uh, you know, the quick way to get those people off your – to get them off your back and to get them to go away and you go, oh, hey, brothers, uh, brothers, sisters, whatever, you know, you, you don't want to talk to me. I don't want you to – get in trouble. I've been disfellowshipped and they split. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. 
So uh, tell them that you were disfellowshipped, and they split. And away they go. <laughs> there you go. That's a life lesson from James Murphy right there. They don't even try to. They don't even try to hand you their tracts or anything. They just beat it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So my, they're not allowed. Yeah, they're not allowed <laughs> to talk to you if you've been disfellowshipped. My theory then of answering the door either A in my underwear or B with my death metal shirts that have like uh, pentagrams and inverted crosses <laughs> on them. That doesn't seem to work either. So yeah, I'm gonna have to try yours no, next no, time. No, no, no. Just tell them. Just tell them you were. <laughs> Just, just tell me you were disfellowshipped. It's the uh, it's the J Dubs version of uh, <laughs> being excommunicated from the Catholic Catholic Church, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> amazing. Sorry, you know. So, yeah. speaking of uh, getting back to the studio, then do you find yourself these days? You know, you you brought up the two inch tape earlier. I was gonna I was gonna bring that up again because that's the era that I come from with the the two inch apexes and you know the reels and the big monster boards that these studios used to have. Do you find yourself really mm-hmm. just kind of in the digital realm for the most part today? I mean, Pro Tools is obviously a thing and mixing in the box is obviously a thing. Is that really where you're at home at these days? Uh, no, I, I don't mix in the box. I break out to a lot of outboard. I use oh, wow. a lot of outboard, some vintage, some more modern, but I use actually a lot of physical hardware, awesome. you know, both analog and digital that I break out. So I, I, I never mix completely in the box with just, uh, plugins. It, you know, I mean, it, it's certainly possible and it's, uh, it's a way of doing things that has its advantages. A uh, one in that you don't have to have a lot of, you know, spend a lot of money on a bunch of expensive outboard equipment right. and the cabling to hook it all up. Um, and another advantage it has is a uh, total recall, you know, um, uh, total recall of a mix just by virtue of opening the file. Uh, you don't have to go uh, recall presets on outboard gear, recall settings, you know, physical settings on analog gear by looking at recall sheets and matching where the knob was set. You don't have to do any of that. So that, that it has its advantages. But I also, you know, obviously I believe that uh, working with a hybrid, you know, sort of setup where you're doing part, some things in the box, but you're breaking out to a lot of analog gear and even external digital gear also has its advantages because there's just certain sounds and certain things that you can't get in the box. Yeah. You know, certain things you, they can, you know, it could be mimicked, but it's not exactly the same. Yeah. I've been to a lot of yeah. studios with tons of outboard gear, racks and racks and racks and racks. And, you know, it's all eye candy and you know, ooh, cool compressors and oh, cool EQs and whatnot. And then you watch, you know, the people and I'm like, oh, you're not using any of that stuff. No, nah. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like a waste. I don't know how to use any of it. So for me, it's just, it blows my mind anyway. But uh, it seems that where we're at these days, the digital just, it's, it makes life so much easier for people. I wonder if it's becoming a crutch. Oh, there's no doubt that anything that makes life easier can become a crutch when abused. And, and there are all, there will always be people that abuse it. Um, absolutely. Not, not really much more to say about that. I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? People will abuse things that are easily abused. Sure. I like knobs and buttons and things that go clickety clack and tappity tap. And, you know, I feel yeah, like I can, I can manipulate too. them. And I, you know, my, my rudimentary recording skills being that they are, I get super frustrated trying to dial in a tone with a, either a mouse that I can't get that minute little thing to move just that little skosh. Oh, it's super frustrating. But if I turn the knob, it goes right where I want it to go. So, uh, I guess I, I'm feeling nostalgic about the old days. There's certain things in which um, will never be replaced, you know, in by a plug-in, and that's yeah. microphones. Although there are plugins that purport to take, you know, microphone, you know, 
third or fourth level tier microphone A and turn it into top tier. Yeah, turn it into the ten thousand dollar Neumann B. You know, uh, uh, I don't I don't put a lot of stock in that. Yeah. Um, uh, and and Mike Pre's themselves. You know, a good a good Mike Pre. You know, if you got those, you can. I mean, those are your primary tools right there. You, there's your there's your source, your space, the way those two things interact, and then there's where you put that microphone, what microphone you choose, and what mic pre you choose, and how you set it. You know, and uh, if, if you can get those few things down, and then perhaps, you know, I mean, you can, you're just a w- w- way ahead of the game. Yeah. Have you done anything as far as working with uh, like signature Kemper profiles for yourself or anything like that? I have not yet, but I am going to be doing that coming up. Oh, what's the catalyst for that? Just deciding it's time just to try something new? Uh, being contacted by someone who thought it would be a good idea for me and, and laying it out for me and then just sort of thought, okay. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, there's there's a, a bazillion uh, amp packs for Deathcore and metalcore and slam and this, that, and the other, and you know, modern metal, blah, blah, blah. There's a bazillion ampex for that, you know. I want to do something that would be a little bit more skewed towards where I come from, you know. Um, you know, what I what I bring to the table in that regard. So hopefully we'll see something to come in with. I don't want to say too much about it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> don't wanna don't want to uh, you know. Spoil don't want to blow it before it happens. Spoil the soup. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Exactly. Spoiling the soup. Yeah. I was talking to Jamie King uh, not too long ago and same thing. He's like, yeah, I recently started doing some, some of my own profiles and he's like, it's really kind of changed some, some timing issues and made things a lot better. And you know, Kemper's being our, what they are, they're such a powerhouse in the industry anymore. It's uh it's hard to get away from them. Yeah. Well, the bottom line is there's just the economics of it when it comes to touring, especially when you're, you know, you know, cartage of your gear, you know, just or your transportation of your gear is a lot of can be a lot of money, you know, uh, especially on fly gigs. So and, and there's just the ease at which, you know, you set things up, you know, it's just it's really hard to uh, it is like you say, it's hard to escape it. Yeah. Well, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Mr. Mr. Ray Curry, uh, recently I was talking to him about uh, his relaunch, the Thrashing the Vault EP, which, of course, you were a part of, speaking of guest solos on uh, Faceless Enemy. Um, how did that project kind of come to you? Uh, just Ray contacted me. Ray contacted me and asked me if I wanted to play a guest solo on this song. And uh, I was up for it. Um, you know, doing guest solos is one of the things I do to to earn my living as well. So, you know, you know, he, he, you know, he offered me, uh, uh, the opportunity to do it and to, and to be paid to do it. And, uh, you know, I was very happy to do that, to, to be able to put bread on my table, apply my craft and to have fun doing it and to make, so, uh, you know, someone else happy, you know, Ray and his band, you know, happy with what it, my results and to then have, you know, the people who listen to that album, you know, enjoy it, you know, it's just, a. Uh, it was just a great all around experience. And I, I even actually uh, made a, uh, put a video on YouTube of me 
doing that solo. Yeah, I saw it actually. So you can, uh, you can <laughs> it's there on the interwebs. You can check it out. It is. You can check it out on my YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah there you go, James Murphy YouTube channel. Um, so that that project when I watched the video, uh, you know, you just sit that back with your guitar. Hey, I'm going to video this, and here's what's going through my mind. It was cool to kind of see the work in progress. How many? Uh, I guess I don't know. Drafts is the right word. How many? How many versions of that did you do before you finally settled on the one that uh, that became immortalized on the album? At that point, it was. I was working exactly as I do now, exactly as I did when I when I recorded the solo for the solos for spiritual healing. You know, I just. I sit there and I play along with the part a few times. I start to get a couple of, you know, some good ideas. And then I take those ideas and I arrange them into a, like a little narrative, like tell a little story here. Back to you your know? story. Yeah. It's not a story, you know, it's not, it's, it's more a story of uh, feelings, you know, that the, the vibe that it gives you rather than actual words. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm not, I'm not being literal and being more figurative when I say story. It's more just about the emotion and vibe and flow of it. But, it is, that is what it is, even though I'm speaking, you know, figuratively and there's not actual text. Um, it's a story, you know, and you put it together. So and, and it, a lot of times the initial way I feel is, is sometimes exactly things will stay right where I first play them because you know, things work or don't work because of what chord is underneath them. Usually, you know, a lot of times. And so you can't just like move something arbitrarily somewhere else that has. You know, the same chord has to sort of be happening. So a lot of time it sort of falls into place really kind of in order. And I might move it around just a little bit, you know. Yeah. yeah I noticed that a lot of times uh, when, I, when I would play back in the day when I would tell myself I was halfway decent. I'd play something out, get a first take out of it and be like, all right, that's pretty good. Let me go try it again. And then subsequently... I was almost always happier going back to the first couple takes than the 10 or 20 takes down the road. Um, you just overthink yeah, it or you, something. You can absolutely overthink. Yeah, you can you can overthink big time. And uh, I don't recall that being the case with the uh, with the Outlier solo. I think it came together really, really quickly for me. I, yeah, I don't remember that Faceless Enemy solo being... Uh, one that gave me too much trouble that I, you know, you know, some solos I just beat myself up over getting them down. And, <laughs> but a lot of times those ones that have just come somewhat easily to me are the, are the, are the best ones, yeah. the ones that I like the best years later. And, you know, I still occasionally will, you know, as I'm doing some maintenance on my YouTube channel, we'll come across that video and I'll, and I'll watch it occasionally, you know, every few months or so I'll, I'll give that thing a spin and, and I, I still like it every time I listen. Yeah, no, it's great. It's awesome. It's got that little tasteful bit of a uh, whammy there in the end of it. And it's, uh, you know, obviously got your signature sound, if you will. So, uh, yeah, no props on that. I was, uh, it was funny how, because it was done so long ago and then, you know, kind of brought back out. And then of course there you are again. Oh, Hey, look, here's, this is what happened back in the day. And now it's new again. It's, it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you're going to go back on tour, say tomorrow, right? Because, you know, we all know that's going to happen. Uh, and you could only bring one amp, one cabinet, one effects board and one guitar. What are you going to bring with you? One amp, one cabinet, one guitar. Well, the guitar would undoubtedly be your comparisons. Uh, uh, my comparison tat special. Yeah, okay. I, I bring I bring one of my comparisons, probably the tat special because it's probably the most versatile, you know, um, for, you know, I, in other words, said. I can play for everything that I do because right. it does have, I mean, I, some of my comparisons, I don't have a bar, right. You know, I do a lot of bar stuff in my solo playing. So if I could only have one guitar, it would have to be one with a bar. So it would probably, it would be the tat special. Um, 
If I actually took a, a physical amplifier, it would probably be my uh, 5150 Mark III. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, that's a the beast. The EVH 5150 Mark III. And the cabinet would be uh, my Mesa loaded with uh, V30s. Okay. It's uh, it's one of their oversized cabs. I think it's sort of the standard Mesa size, but it's oversized compared to like Marshall cabs or something. They're a little bigger. It's a little bigger than those. Right. This is a nice straight cab loaded with V30s and uh, yeah, it'd be that in the, in the 5150. Now, if I did, if you hadn't asked me specifically what amps I would take, I probably would say I would just take a Kemper. Take the Kemper, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Because uh, <laughs> uh, let's compare the weight <laughs> of the Kemper versus but, – but, but I would be playing profiles made with that amp and that cabinet. Right. I would make the profiles myself with that amp and that cabinet. So it's not really and, cheating. Uh, so it would be – so it would be my sound, absolutely. It'd be my sound with my 5150 Mark III and my Mesa V30 yeah. cap. And if you weren't taking the Kemper and you were going with all your old school gear, uh, what kind of effects are you going to bring with you? Well, the, the only effect that stayed with me from the very beginning, the very first pedal that I ever bought, I bought it in probably in, in 1984. Um, before I even really considered myself having started playing very much you know i asked for guitars for christmas and birthdays from the age of eight uh, my father would never get me one my father my mother could never afford it my father would just never do it um so i got my first guitar in 1984 when i had been we were living in germany and i was a i was what they call an army brat my dad was in the military and uh, i was going to school in germany but you know it was an american school but uh, a bunch of kids just like me, other army brats. And, uh, you know, we had our summers, uh, with the summers, the department of defense over there, uh, ran a, uh, dependent youth employment program. So if you were a military dependent youth, you could apply and get assigned a job for the summer and get paid. And, uh, I did that and I saved up all my money. And I think I did that for two summers in a row and saved all my money and squirreled it away. And, uh, Finally, at some point in 1984, I went down to a little music shop in Gießen, a little town nearby where I was living. I was living in a smaller town called Bootsbach, and there was a bigger little mid-sized or so city called Gießen nearby. I took uh, one of the Army-operated buses over there to Gießen, and uh, I walked off the base and went on to what we refer to as the German economy. So I went out into off the base. I didn't want to shop at the base. I went to a German store. And I, I bought myself my very first electric guitar, and I bought my first myself my very first guitar pedals, my very first guitar pedal, and it was an Ibanez TS9 tube, tube screamer, screamer, yeah. And that was you had an Aria Pro, oh, right? Yeah. Is that what you bought? The guitar was an Aria, Aria, an Aria Pro Two, Aria <laughs> Pro Two XX Deluxe. Nice. We've all had <laughs> black the... flying V with a yellow lightning bolt. Woo! Awesome. And the tube screamer. Do you still have that uh, tube screamer? Yeah. And, that tube screamer was uh, the victim of something over the years, and I, <laughs> I don't really even remember what happened to it. But I bought tube screamers all the time back then. I, I very shortly after I bought that tube screamer, that was the TS9. Uh, they came out with the TS10, like probably the next year, and I bought that. It was my second pedal, the TS10, and I do still have that TS10. We got it right there in the next room. <laughs> and in fact, you can see one of this, one of those pictures of me from 1989 
uh, that, the pictures that I took of Chuck sitting on a stool in more sound recording, um, recording spiritual healing. And if you look down at his feet, you see a little green box and that's my TS 10. That's your TS 10. That's killer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so is that the pedal you take with you then? That's your tour pedal. It's pretty beat up. Um, it's got some problems now. It, it likes to put still works, but it likes to push cables out in the back and it's not easy to work on because those were done on PCBs and they were, you know, not an easy pedal to work on. But, you know, since then, I have a huge Tube Screamer collection. So I would bring some kind of Screamer with me, possibly my possibly my TS-808 reissue from several years back. I bought probably, I don't know, probably bought it a decade ago or something. I don't, I don't know. Um, probably that, that pedal. Now, if you, you know, that wouldn't really cover uh, the rest of the effects I would need because, you know, you need a little verb and some, some delay for solos, you know, you you might need a little compression for clean parts. You know what I mean? So I, w- I would probably want a compressor, probably want a, uh, uh, in addition to the tube screamer, I'd want like a compressor. I'd want a delay. I'd want a verb and I'd want a, uh, uh, a boost, which the boost would probably probably be the exotic effects EP booster. I have that. And I love that. And, uh, yeah. Um, uh, the verb would probably be the, this off the top of my head would probably be the MXR reverb, the M300, I think it is. Love that guy. And, uh, and, uh, delay. Hmm. I don't know. Probably get like a Strymon timeline, oh, something like that. Something I could. The bad control. boy. Yeah. Yeah. The Strymon timeline. Awesome. I like, you know, I love like the carbon copy. The MXR, the MXRs, carbon copy, yeah. That's fantastic. You know, I love a lot of those pedals. But nice. Yeah, but I'm, I have a massive pedal collection. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> a massive pedal collection. They, are, they look good in the studio. I have a bunch of them too, and I just never use them, but they sure look cool, and I get happy faces when I look at them. <laughs> like the guitars that I don't play. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah well, look who I'm talking to. I'm sure your collection far exceeds mine. <laughs> so <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, listen, let's get to a couple quick listener questions and... uh Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, from Peter Dixon, who is a fellow GIT student, didn't you go to MI at some point? Uh, no, um, I moved to Atlanta with the intention of uh-huh. attending AIM, <laughs> AIM, which at the time was affiliated. It was considered a sister school. Got it. Of of GIT, when, you know, of, of MI when it was still called GIT. They had they had. AIM out in Atlanta. So I went up there to Atlanta and that's the time period during which I jammed with the Hollows Eve guys. Got it. Um, that's all we ever did was jam. We never played shows. We never recorded anything, but, uh, I was right before I got the gig in death actually. So yeah. One of those guys was your roommate, wasn't it? One of the Hollows Eve guys. Yeah. Dave Stewart from Hollows oh. Eve was my roommate. Yeah. Crazy. So you never actually ended up going to MI, uh, but uh, yeah. no, it was expensive, <laughs> <laughs> right? Awesome. So, uh, but Peter Dixon says, uh, you know, of all the people you've played with, whether or not it's been in bands or you know studio work or whatever, uh, what musician did you think that you had the best relationship with as far as working with them? Hmm. There's a lot, I know. No, really hard because you know, there's just sort of if I if I make it just specifically to like writing music, sure. putting music together, it was absolutely Chuck Schuldner. Okay, you know we wrote we wrote music together really well, really easy. It just flowed. 
it just flowed. There was, we weren't struggling. We weren't pulling our hair out. We weren't pacing. We were just like, let's try this. Okay, let's try this. You got a part? Oh, yeah, I, I got a part. Oh, that fits. Okay, great. It just flowed. So probably Chuck, when it comes to just, you know, overall, just sort of, you know, hanging out, having fun, you know, and having fun playing together on stage and just having fun hanging out, you know, in the down times even, sure. you know, the, probably, probably Stevie D. Yeah. Steve DiGiorgio. Steve DiGiorgio. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, th- Absolutely. Thanks for that, Peter. Appreciate that. All right. And uh, Chris Heap, who runs the uh, Heaps of Metal pages, uh, wants to ask you, what musicians specifically influenced the direction you decided to go musically with like death and thrash? Was there any particular one or two that kind of really said, I really want to do it like this guy? Um, you know, death, you know, Scream Bloody Gore was a big factor. That absolutely was. I was a huge fan. And I and I liked Leprosy as well when it came out. I was, I was a fan of those. But I, I was just that kind of kid who... Um, you know, grew up initially in the seventies. I grew up in the seventies. And so I was listening to my dad's like seventies uh, rock yeah. collection. Well, death metal know? wasn't around back and, then. And so. uh, then I started getting to my, not at all. So I moved into like kiss and then rush and then black Sabbath. So you can see I was steadily getting heavier and heavier and heavier. Yeah. And more he- and or heavier. And, uh, you know, I followed on and I found out, you know, the Judas priest and iron maiden. And then, then, you know, then all of a sudden venom, yeah. What? You know, what's this? This is crazy. And 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 then what okay, then Metallica and Megadeth started showing up and Slayer and and I just always craved heavier and heavier. Then bands like Creator and Destruction started popping up into my you know, into my lexicon there and I just kept I want more, I want more, more and more and more until I got hit with uh, Scream Bloody Gore, you know? And then you know, and then leprosy. So it was just a it was just a natural progression. It, and for every band that I named at each stage of that process, there were 10 or 20 more bands. So it's hard for me to pick out one and say, this was the one you know, it really is. But that was the progression. I hope that, I hope that answer is a, uh, a sufficient substitute for the one he was actually looking for. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Chris is okay with that. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Chris. All right. He goes by the Facebook handle of Paul Bearer, otherwise known as Paul English in real life. Paul wants to know <laughs> when you plan on publishing a cookbook with Kristen, and he says that he'll be the first in line to buy a copy and wants to hire you as his professional <laughs> chef. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. My fiance is quite the cook. Yeah. She's amazing. And uh, uh, there's, there's a reason why, you know, everyone else can't see this you're you're the only one looking at me but there's a reason why i'm framing it about this high up yeah. well you <laughs> notice my I've frame gained, gained some weight. <laughs> my frame looks like your frame so i think we're in the we're playing yeah. the same frame game yeah yeah <laughs> I've, I've gained some weight and uh because she is such an amazing cook and uh yeah i want to i want to see her do that book too um i would only be contributing to one recipe the uh, buffalo chicken sandwiches which i'm making tonight very shortly after we get off this interview. Oh, in um, honor of Paul. <laughs> uh, yep, yep. And uh, uh, so, but Kristen will be happy to hear that uh, uh, that, that question popped up. Yeah. Uh, because she's, uh, you know, she, she loves to cook and she loves when people appreciate it. So buffalo <laughs> yeah. sandwiches for dinner tonight. Cool. One more listener question. And this is from Joe. 
when you were putting together your two solo albums uh, and between that time and the Disincarnate, how did you decide what would become solo material and how did you decide what would become Disincarnate material? Well, it, it was pretty easy. Uh, uh, I wrote the uh, Disincarnate album uh, and, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I probably wrote like, I think four of the songs almost completely by myself. And then the rest of them, I collaborated uh, with uh, uh, a couple of my band members, uh, Jason and Brian. And those songs were all written in 1992. Okay. And uh, I did not, I did not write a note for my first solo album until 1994 or 95, I think 94. Okay. I started writing it. So it hadn't been kind of yeah. stewing around so, in the head. It just kind of was like, mm, no, they were, they were separated by a couple of years. Right. And, uh, and, I, but, but I think also, even if they had happened at the same time, I think it, it's not that hard stylistically to draw a line between them. I think there's a, a clear, di- not just a dividing line between them, but a nice buffer zone. Sure, <laughs> it's a yeah. Big buffer zone between the kind of riffs, you know that that I and we wrote for Disincarnate, and the type of things that I wrote for my solo albums. Yeah. Well, and Disincarnate was really designed as a as a band, if you will, correct. Whereas your solo stuff was probably just yeah, more exactly. more pet passions and wanting to just do something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, originally, I mean, Disincarnate was always written to have vocals, and my instrumental stuff I had always intended to be all instrumental. It was it was really Mike uh, Varney at Shrapnel's idea to have to make the albums half and half, half with vocals and half instrumental. Sure. So yeah, awesome. And then of course you had uh, you know Chuck rejoined you, uh, Chuck Billy to to do a track for you, which was pretty cool. Yeah, he did. He did one track on each of my. Solo albums, absolutely yeah, amazing. We got uh, Devin Townsend did a couple of tracks on yeah. my first solo album, and, and uh, yeah, I, I had some cool, some cool guests. That's awesome. Who was the first guest you reached out to? Just a rabbit hole there. I think it was Chuck Billy. Oh, amazing! Yeah, I think I think he, I think he was the very first person I reached out to. Cool. Well, I guess I'm going to throw myself on the uh, the fire on the pile of ask James this, but uh, your Facebook profile still says manages disincarnate. Is there still some disincarnate to manage? That is the plan. <laughs> that is the plan. Yeah. However, there's a little something something that I'm going to be doing before that. Oh. That uh, I'm working I'm working on now, and it's with a, a different bunch of guys, and it it's been uh, you know I would say that I'm. Uh, I, I don't, I think it's probably premature to talk about it. It's not a big secret, but I'm doing a project with a couple of other guys from, from bands that, you know, the lineup is not completely set in stone yet because there's a couple, there's at least one spot that we haven't really got the confirmation yet, uh, but we're going to do a cool album together of old school death metal type stuff. Oh. Um, and, uh, that's just going to sort of be my bridge into getting to working on the new, on the next disincarnate because I don't, I just want to see what comes out of me on that project. And it, trust me, if I come up with a riff that like, okay, this just reeks of disincarnate, I'm going to sure. set it aside and not use it on, <laughs> on this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically I, I, I probably, I probably should mention, I think uh, what this project is. Um, currently it's me, Paul from uh, November's doom on vocals 
Um, uh, uh, another guitar player is looks like it's almost certainly going to be. He's you know he's confirmed that he wants to do it. Uh, 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 is uh, Ken Bergeron or AKA Ken Sorceron from Abigail Williams? Okay. And uh, and uh, there's another person who I don't want to mention yet because uh, there's the drummer who's Larry who also who also plays in November's Doom and there's uh, uh, a fifth guy a bass player or fourth guy yeah fifth guy bass player that uh, is not 100% confirmed yet so I'm not going to name him sure. it's, uh, if he comes through, if he comes through that's it's going to be really awesome yeah. It'll be a, it's going to be just a very cool old project. We're going to play some some original old school death metal type material, and uh, 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 for the time being, anyway, um, you know we have we have a working title, a working name uh, that we're probably going with. It's just uh, called Bloodverus. It's uh, like like carnivorous, okay, uh, but blood but blood is spelled like. Blood's built with one O with a hard line over the top of it. Okay. A da- you know, dash over the top. So it's uh, called Blood for Us, and uh, we're going to see what we come up with, man. See if we can throw some cool stuff out there. Oh, that's killer. And this is going to be the sort of the project to uh, to kick me in the ass to uh, and to bridge over to me doing a new disincarnation. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm sure after, you know, time yeah, goes by, you know, it just it, it's hard to kind of sometimes relive that stuff as much as you want to. You've got to be in the right the right frame of mind, the right time and everything like that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to get myself in the right frame of mind. There's a couple of things that I want to happen first. So one thing I would really like to happen first, I would like to get a hold of the multi-tracks of the dreams of the carrying kind. And Ro- unfortunately roadrunner currently doesn't actually know where they are. Oh yeah. Cause you didn't record them yourself. So I want to, I want to, yeah, I want to get those tapes, get the, probably have to bake them a little while and get them transferred over to digital. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, there's things I want to do with that things that will will sort of help us get back in the mode, back in the swing and help us build up to doing it, you know, in in the, in the way that I really want to. So we'll see whether or not it's disincarnate or whether or not it's your amazing new blood versus passion project. Will these be just studio albums or do you see a show down the road here and there? I can absolutely see us doing uh, shows, particularly things like festival run, festival runs, and uh, you know, like seventy k. You know, yeah. Oh man, that's just you the know, dream gig right you know, there. I can see us doing that stuff. Um, do I see us, uh, you know, packing into vans and doing a, you know, a, a, a you know, thirty date, you know, eat shit and die tour? <laughs> Probably not so much. Yeah. You know? Well, that's um, a great name for a tour. But we do want to get out there. We, we would like to get out there and play, but it would probably be more like you, you, you would have better luck catching us at a festival than at your local metal bar. Sure. You know? Now, well, you know, never say never. Looks like there's tons of uh, tons of cool stuff. I will definitely never say never. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Awesome. Well, what's the uh, what's the next project that we can expect to hear from you? What's what's coming down the road that's going to have your name attached to it that we might hear out there sometime soon? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Tiwanaku is going to be on Transcending Records. Okay. 
the new Tiwanaku, Tiwanaku album. It was uh, Ed Mowry, who used to, back in the day, used to be in, uh, uh, I think he was in Nocturnus for a while. Okay. Um, but he's got his own band now called Tiwanaku. T-I-W-O, I want to say. Oh, good grief. I can't even think of My apologies, Ed. <laughs> I am not 100% sure how to spell Tiwanaku. Um, but uh, look for Ed Mowry. Okay. And you will find it. Uh, M-O-W-R-E-Y. Um, and, uh, he's recently signed a deal with, uh, uh, Transcending Records. And so that is going to end up out soon. I'm doing a, a guest solo on that, um, coming up here. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm mastering a number of things. So I don't, you know. I don't know. I don't know the order that things are coming sure. out. <laughs> Fair enough. Honest. You've got a lot of stuff uh, on the yeah. cooker, though, for sure. Yeah, I've got a mix booked with a, and I hate to admit this, but I got a mix mix booked with a band from Switzerland that I don't even remember the name of right now. So <laughs> they're probably not going to be happy with me right yeah, now. But well, you know. some of this is work that comes to me through another producer. So I'll release this episode in Switzerland last, then just to uh, give you a little extra time. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. <laughs> hey, well, if somebody wants to collaborate with you, or somebody wants to hire you for some guest solos, or somebody wants you to work some amazing mastering guru magic, how do people reach out to you? What's the best way to get you involved in a project? Well, I am available for uh, pre-production, production, engineering, mixing, mastering, guest solos. Uh, session guitar work, all of the above, reamping. Um, I'm, I'm available for all of that. Uh, and uh, you can reach me at my Facebook page. Pretty easy to find. I think it's uh, just facebook.com slash James Murphy producer, I believe. Um, you can also contact me through my uh, studio ba- uh, studio page, which is set up like an artist page, I guess, on Facebook. And it's called uh, uh, Safe House Production. So you can find me there. And, uh, you know, you can find me on uh, the, the Instagrams, the Twitters. I think I'm James F. Murphy on Twitter. I don't do a lot of Twitter, i got to be honest. Yeah, it's a mess. Um, but Facebook, Facebook's really probably the best way. Or you can just email me at jfmguitarist. It's my initials, James fucking Murphy. <laughs> Guitarist. Yeah. Actually, my middle name is Franklin, so it is JFM Guitarist, all in one, at gmail.com. So JFM, G-U-I-T-A-R-I-S-T, at gmail.com. I also have the Hotmail and the Yahoo, so if you screw up and do the wrong one, I'll still get it. And uh, so so email, that's another, that's another great way. Outstanding. Well, anything else that you want to plug before I let you get back to your life for the day? Um... Uh, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. Well, your head's full of stuff, that's for sure. So Yeah, uh, <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> it is. I hear it rattling around up there all the time. <laughs> You've been way more than generous with your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, for doing this with me today. And uh, congratulations on your career and all the cool stuff you've done. Looking forward to hearing all the projects you're going to be involved in. And who knows, down the road, we see some, some new material from you. And uh, I'll be looking forward to that as well. So Awesome, man. Thanks so much. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, James Murphy. Well, there you have it. 
an epic conversation chock full of historical and educational nuggets of awesomeness. I encourage you all to listen to James's solo material. Seriously, you know, we didn't get a chance to get into that topic as in-depth as I had originally planned, but do yourself a favor, check out Convergence and check out Feeding the Machine, and you'll get a true feel for the level of talent and dynamic diversity that only begins to scratch the surface of what James is capable of. And of course, thank you all so much for listening. I definitely appreciate it. And if you like what I'm doing, don't forget to subscribe to the show. And more importantly, please invite your friends to like the Misery Point Radio Facebook page. That would help me tremendously more than you can possibly imagine. And now I'm going to leave you with the song off of James's first solo album, Convergence. This one is called Shadows Fall. Shadows Fall.